Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 4.2, Gentrification. And welcome back to another episode of Musings on History. I'm your host, Dana, and I wish you all a happy and safe and prosperous 2020. 2019 kicked my ass from beginning to end, but that bitch is dead now and I'm still here on New Year's Eve talking to you all about gentrification. So take that, 2019. Gentrification is, in my inexpert opinion, probably the most second favorite word in the social media intelligence is lexicon with the first of course being nuance so without further ado let's begin so oxford dictionary which is a dictionary that i personally find very irritating because of its obsequious dedication to objectivity defines gentrification as the process of renovating and or improving a house or district so that it conforms to middle class tastes This framing presents a sort of dilemma for me because it's my belief that the middle class doesn't have any taste. The same people who decided a rundown district filled with closed factories and rusty train tracks would now be a hipster district filled with converted lofts and railroad-themed breweries are the people who then tell the middle classes, this is cool now. The absurdity is that it wouldn't matter what real estate developers, local politicians for hire and middling D-list public intellectuals sold them. They have no taste whatsoever. So whatever they're told to think is cool, they'll subscribe to. The underfunded public school turned into a swanky apartment still looks like an underfunded inner city public school and sometimes even still smells and malfunctions like one. They're not actually improving anything in a lot of cases, so it really is just the biggest scam. So with that over, where did this real estate shell game originate? The long answer, of course, is in the history of racism, classism, and capitalism, but the short answer is in the growth of American cities and suburban areas post-World War II. So gentrification comes from the word gentry, which means landowner. In the West, our socio economic understanding of self is all derived from English-speaking Enlightenment philosophers like Adam Smith and David Hume, who were both from the UK, Scotland to be specific, where landowners occupied a favored place in society. The founding fathers of America were all Smith and Humes and Hobbes fanboys, except Ben Franklin, the lone Francophile of the bunch. So one could say that Americans' rabid and frankly self-destructive obsession with land and property begins with these enlightenment philosophers and the social norms that dominated their time. Although many, including myself, tend to credit the American Canadian journalist Jane Jacobs as the originator of the term gentrification, it was actually British sociologist Ruth Glass who first used the term in its modern sense. So gentrification as a word had been used since the early Augustine Roman era, but in the context of a person becoming a member of the equestrian class by becoming a property owner. So it's always had these sort of 
middle class aspirational undertones to it. Glass coined the term gentrification in its modern context, of course, to describe the changes that were being made to working class London neighborhoods as the city was rebuilding and expanding after World War II. Glass believed that the function of sociology, she was a sociologist by trade, was to influence government policy and bring about social change. And when she coined the term, she used it in the context of gentrification as an insidious social policy that displaces low-income, mostly minority people, devalues the social capital of spaces, and steepens inequality. So she was right. Her opponents took her term and used gentrification within the context of a production model. Very important to understand the context in which words are used and then popularized affects how we feel about those words. And when those words are applied to policy, it affects how we feel about that policy, which is the purpose of me doing this series. The words in and of themselves, if they don't mean anything and they don't incite some sort of contextual reaction, you won't understand the policy that it's being applied to and what the full scale of the results of that policy might be. So they took it and used it in the context of a production model, which gave the term a more germane meaning as a social tool that makes existing structures more productive. And nothing makes Americans and Brits wet their pants. Like the idea that someone or something might become more productive. After all, that's what we're here for, right? The implication here is that low-income people are less productive than high-income persons, with the land values in low- and high-income neighborhoods used as the proof of this. The issue with this logic is that these land values are not the be-all and end-all indicators as it pertains to productivity. In the field of economics, there's always a thousand and one ways to skin a cat, right? So while businesses in low-income areas do produce smaller profits due to their clientele being poorer, duh, consumer loyalty is usually much higher and these businesses can afford to stay open for longer periods of time. Why? Loyal clientele and low property taxes. Nobody wants to have a business where they have a business. They don't have any competition. They're not expected to produce much. They have lower taxes. Whereas small businesses of similar size and higher income neighborhoods must work harder to retain the business of their more affluent clientele. Affluent people can afford to go further for their goods and services, and they have more goods and services catering to them, so there's more competition. These small businesses in more affluent areas pay higher taxes and rents than their peers in lower income areas due to, of course, the posh location. But the fickle consumerism of the middle classes means they're less likely to be able to afford to stay there long term. So there's higher turnover. So while productivity in terms of taxation generated is higher, productivity in terms of actual sales and business longevity is lower. All that considered, though, what I really want to harp on is the primarily American view that gentrification is a natural cycle of human migration. That was all a part of Jane Glass's opponents trying to take gentrification from being a very insidious 
social policy that seeks to displace people and turning it into just a natural circumstance. You know, that invisible hand just moving. While human beings do migrate and cluster in communities based on shared racial, ethnic, religious, and national values, the displacement of these communities in favor of newer, more affluent residents is not natural at all and is actually a byproduct of the engineered poverty cycle. What I mean by engineered poverty cycle is this. Think about all the things you need to survive in this modern world. Food, shelter, schooling, transportation, a job, etc., etc. In order to create a climate of poverty, governments will underfund public transportation, public housing, and public schools. Trash is collected less often in low-income neighbors, uh, low-income areas. Utilities take longer to be fixed. Roads are not regularly repaired. So most people look at poor neighborhoods and think, oh, they don't care about their own neighborhoods. But the government itself does not seem to care if power lines are frayed or broken, potholes are turning into craters. So why would the residents, who are usually renters and thus don't get any type of like kickback in the form of tax, uh, lower taxes? Even the number of public trash cans is lower in poor neighborhoods. The lack of funding, proper funding for public schools in poor areas results in larger classroom sizes, fewer learning materials, no heat, broken tables and chairs, fewer subjects taught, and little to no standardized test prep, plus school lunches that are unappealing and not nutritious. The lack of funding for public housing means all manner of vermin-infested buildings, utilities not working, making it freezing in the winter and sweltering in the summer. Thus, a person born into a low-income family is trapped in poverty, Poverty easily prevented by a responsive government. But Dana, you ask, how does gentrification become a byproduct of the poverty cycle? Well, listener, I'm glad you asked. Gentrification is insidious not because of the demographic changing, but because of the government's response to the demographic changing. If Bob and Billy, two college-educated middle-class white-collar workers, move into a low-income area because it's close to work and the rent is dirt cheap, that in of itself does not make Bob and Billy gentrifiers. But when Bob and Billy's friends buy a house and renovate, and then Bob and Billy do the same and start calling 311 to get the 20-year-old potholes outside their homes fixed, and the government, same government that has never responded before when Keisha and Kevin called, responds because, according to Zillow, the neighborhood that Bob and Billy live in is up and coming. That is gentrification. Not so much Bob and Billy moving into the neighborhood, but when Bob and Billy move into the neighborhood, now all of a sudden potholes are getting fixed and telephone wires are being replaced and street sweepers start coming through. That, the government response, is the gentrification. Private entities are allowed to choose which demographic to cater to. Governments are not private entities. And they are supposed to be responsive to all citizens and residents equally. And in return, these citizens and residents are to obey the laws of said government. That in itself is the essence of the social contract. And gentrification is a violation of that contract. 
When public parks suddenly get cleaning crews, streets get sweet street, ugh, street sweepers, sidewalks are built and repaired to make the area safer for pedestrians and bicyclists, and other improvements are made to cater to a wealthier demographic after intentionally starving the low-income residents of these same public goods that she should have rightfully had. That is gentrification, and that is how it is a byproduct of the poverty cycle. Now, one of the central figures most commonly associated with gentrification was Jane Jacobs. She was a journalist and activist who lived in Greenwich Village in the 1960s. Jane Jacobs was a housewife with no formal training in urban planning, but she was heavily involved in her local community and campaigned against the Lower Manhattan Expressway that was supposed to cut through that area. Her central argument was that the male-dominated field of urban planning isolated people from their communities, making life more difficult for families of all income levels. Her nemesis was Robert Moses, an architect and city planner known as the Master Builder, who was responsible for the expressway that ended up cutting through the mostly Black and Latino neighborhoods in the Bronx. And he was responsible for the Lower Manhattan Expressway that Jacob successfully blocked from cutting through Soho, Little Italy, and Greenwich Village. Jane Jacobs is usually credited with bringing the concept of gentrification into the American mainstream. However, for her, the fight was against urban renewal. And in her book, The Life and Death of Great American Cities, she actually endorsed gentrification, calling it unslumming. So Jane Jacobs was kind of a victim of what Ruth Glass's opponents intended to do. Take away the real effects of the social policies that gentrification creates. So she didn't see it the way that Ruth Glass saw it. However, I would like to clarify that Jacobs endorsed gentrification in the form of government spending to fix up poor neighborhoods. So Jane Jacobs thought if gentrification were evenly applied, it could be a good thing. But the whole thing about it is that gentrification is when this government infrastructure spending is not equally applied. So Jane Jacobs basically misused the word. She wanted the government to fix up these poor neighborhoods so that wealthier families would move back to the cities from the suburbs, creating mixed income communities. So she didn't hate wealthier people. She just didn't want them to leave the cities. She felt like the cities were just a better overall community. Now, to our minds, the suburbs obviously seem better, but that's because, well, We've been programmed to see them that way. But cities used to have strong, intact communities, like you can still see in Greenwich Village today. And Jane Jacobs basically thought, if we all just live on top of each other, we'll all be happier. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think cities are just teeming with uh, disease and all other sorts of things I don't want to be bothered with. I'm a mid-sized town kind of girl myself, but we do what we can with what we have. Now, Jane was a vocal opponent of displacing minority communities, although there was an absence of a race-based lens on urban renewal. And it was a valid critique of life and death and was noted by her critics. Jane Jacobs kept battling uh, 
Robert Moses and the city government of New York. And then she decided to leave the United States and immigrate to Canada in the 1970s so that her draft age sons would not have to fight in the Vietnam War. That was actually a very popular option. And there's a whole area of Toronto called the Annex, which was basically called Little America because so many usually middle-class Americans who had sons that they didn't want to fight in Vietnam would move to Toronto for that very reason. So their sons wouldn't have to go. Once she was in Canada, she settled into that American expat community and continued to campaign against highway encroachment, blocking the expansion of the Spadina Expressway in central Toronto, among other things. One thing she's remembered for is asking, are we building cities for cars or people? Which cemented her as a central figure in the new urbanist movement. While Jacobs saw herself contributing more to the field of economic theory, she's usually tied to the field of urban planning, which is ironic since she once called the entire field of urban planning a pseudoscience. Now switching gears, I want to discuss address a discussion rather, that I tend to see on social media. It's the question of can black people be gentrifiers? I use black people as the example because one, I'm black and that's what I know best, but gentrification does happen in other racial and ethnic groups as well. Native Hawaiians have pretty much been gentrified out of Hawaii and Chinatowns across America are at risk of gentrification as well. I even discovered that in Berlin, Germany, Swabians, that is people from Swabia in southern Bavaria, are often targeted by native Berliners as gentrifiers, and they have slurs designed to demean them, which was really interesting because, I mean, we usually think of gentrification through a racial lens, and they're all the same race in Germany. In the U.S., though, the group most commonly trapped in engineered poverty cycles and displaced by gentrification are African-Americans. But at the same time, first and, first and second generation middle class African-Americans are also enticed by in-town living once a neighborhood has been gentrified. So although they are black and moving into a traditionally black neighborhood once it's been gentrified, Their presence does coincide with the displacement of the neighborhood's original inhabitants. So that would, yes, technically qualify them as gentrifiers. Now, what wouldn't qualify them as gentrifiers is I'm pretty sure there are no government policies designed to entice middle class black college educated people into like fancy in town living. They're following trends. But these real estate developers and politicians don't have them in mind. So I guess the answer is yes and no on the question of can black people be gentrifiers? I'm pretty sure you can also apply this to like sec first and second generation black people from the Caribbean or from Africa who move back home. Do they displace Sometimes they do. Do they take opportunities that people who never left don't really get? Sometimes they do. Does this make them a gentrifier? I'm not going to answer that because I want to start off my 2020 on a smooth footing, not with a fire in my mentions. 
Gentrification is basically a politically charged word with a politically charged history. And I think that it's very important to keep that in mind whenever discussing gentrification. You're not just talking about human migration. You're talking about government policies that are designed to displace people. And displacement seems germane in and of itself, like, oh, well, just move somewhere else. But these are people's entire lives being uprooted for a class of folks that are usually transient and don't even stay there. Most gentrifiers, they're going to end up right back in the suburbs where they were raised. So all of this is like progress for progress sake. But is it really progress if these same areas that uprooted generations of people end up being the same ghettos they were? 20 years from now? I can't say.